You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have both been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They've experienced all the difficult emotions, the guilt, the anger, the fear, the shame, the exasperating arguments, highs and lows, crises and relapses. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. They have shepherded their loved ones toward treatment. Their sons are both in recovery today. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies in Recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Hello, Annie Highwater. <laughs> Hello. We are coming up for air, and I am. my voice is a little hoarse, so I will be struggling for air, but hopefully not too annoying with this flu I'm just getting past. Well, um, I hope you feel better soon. Thank you. And um, I guess today's topic um, is support groups. Um, Which is, it's really good because you're the expert on this more than me, so you can do most of the talking. Oh, well, I don't know if I call myself an expert, but um, I may have started off with support groups or attending support groups right. in my journey um, before you had found them. Um, uh, because mine, uh, my attending support group started pretty early on, um, kind of as we talked about last week, I did give myself a good six months, six month period of time to kind of mourn, um, what I was going through and, uh, it was just devastating. I, you know, I was at home a lot. I was alone a lot. Um, but I also tend to be an incredibly positive person. And so I knew inside that I, you, I was not going to stay like this. Right. Um, so I gave myself the six months to do that. And I had told myself that at the end of six months, if I was still really, really down, I was going to have to make some changes. Um, I would start attending support groups. I would, um, I would maybe get some professional help. Um, and, uh, start exercising, but trying to get out of this funk that I had put myself in, I guess. You, and you went into that right after your son presented. The yeah, yeah. Uh, it, literally, it, it was PTSD, absolutely. Right. Without me knowing that, that I had PTSD, it took me a while to kind of get to that and to understand what was happening to me. Um, so I was kind of trying to will myself out of this depressive state that I was in. Um, and actually, I did seek professional help pretty early on. I, I was seeing a, um, I was seeing a psychologist and she was helping me. Um, but then I moved. So that kind of cut that part of it off. And I moved to another um, state where I didn't really have um, my community anymore. Oh, okay. Yeah, that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
so that kind of contributed to my staying at home. Plus, I really wasn't ready. I, I really, really was not ready to go looking for a support group. I had, I had attended a couple of support group meetings in my, um, uh, I used to live in Connecticut. So when I lived in Connecticut, I had gone to a couple of support group meetings because um, the facility that my son was in at the time, which was a fantastic um, program, um, they had said, please attend some meetings. And so I did. And a couple of things happened in those meetings that kind of turned me off in the yeah. beginning. And not, and not necessarily bad, right? It was, it was um, maybe supposed to happen that way. Um, or maybe you weren't ready to hear some of the things. A lot of times newcomers are like, what are they talking about? Right. I am here to solve the problem and not come back. Right, and, and I, I remember my, my very first meeting, I remember this man at the end of the meeting, I, I was just, you know, just an absolute mess. And I remember this man coming up to me and saying, um, you're not gonna get better until you start to accept the fact that your son might die. And that was like one of the first things that I had heard. And I, now, farther along- so what, what prompted that comment? Uh, probably something, maybe something that I had said, okay. you know, maybe my, uh, maybe I, I don't remember all of the details, um, but maybe my, um, expression of, oh my God, you know, I, I don't know if I can do this because <clears throat> I don't know if I can do what they were talking about, you know, the detachment, right? Piece of it, right. Because I was like, no, I, I will do anything as long as he doesn't die. I'm sure I said something to that effect. Um, and then he said to me, you're not going to get better until you are able to accept that he might die. Um, and I don't think it was ill-intended at all. I know I, I think that sometimes those things can be presented a little harsh. Right. I remember a mom who was a nurse who had said in the meeting, and I adopted this as my own, um, just like you can't prevent them coming across cancer or any disease and we can't run alongside every car we can't prevent their accidental death or whatever might happen so maybe that i don't know if that that would have felt harsh for me right it, and and it was it was which is it, you know it was that it was something else this other woman said to me in another meeting that right. really kept me from going back to the support groups again for a while because in my head, when he said that to me, it was, no, I'm, I'm not accepting that. I, I am, there's just no way. And if I have to, I will run alongside that car, <laughs> right? <laughs> Until I can run no more. Right. You know, that, that, no, that's what we do. That's right. Especially at first. Right. And, and so, and I really, I mean, the man was a very nice man. And, and, and it wasn't actually until much later that I was attending support groups that I understood what he was talking about, that he was saying, you know, you know, he was saying to me, you can still be there. You can still be there for him, but, but don't have these unreal expectations, right? Yeah. And, and it probably was too hard for me to hear just at that point, right? Yeah and put so abruptly. Right. Uh, I accidentally wandered into a support group. I went to one about 18 years prior with a friend and we didn't call the issues my mom had addiction. It was just mom's issues or conflict with mom. 
until years later, we all were like, oh, that's what it is because it's these opiates she's been on from that car wreck forever. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't apply it, even though in that meeting, it spoke directly to my life. Right. And I never forgot the speaker. I never forgot the conversations. I never forgot the hope and the, thing, the things that were clarity. So I found my way back in accidentally because I had started sharing our story at a treatment center and somebody had asked me to visit this support group and possibly consider starting one in my hometown or somewhere thereabouts. So I was driving 45 minutes to these two groups, excuse me, and I never ended up leaving. So I, I just have gone twice a week. I drive a great distance each way and I've never left. Right. Right. And that was in, in the, the, I can tell you the second thing, which, People may relate to, you know, um, another thing that this one woman said to me at this one meeting, and it was at the close of the meeting, we were talking, and you may laugh at this a little bit, Annie, but um, she's, I I was talking about my son and I said, yeah, I'm still not convinced he's, he's an addict. I'm still not convinced of that. And she was like, looking at me, I was like, you know, He's, um, he is snorting it, right? He's not shooting up. And so, and, and I said, so I'm not so sure, you know, that, and he hasn't done it long enough. So I am not so sure that my son is an addict. And I mean, and she looked right at me and she said, your son is an addict. And that uh, all I wanted to do in that moment was slap her across the face. Well, yeah, because you're so raw. Right, right. And, and that just turned me, I was like, yeah. well, no, I can't, because I wasn't ready. I brought, you know, yeah, I look back now and I'm like, oh God, of course he was, right? He was struggling with stuff. How, how did he end up where he was? Um, but I wasn't ready, I guess, to accept it. And for her to to say it to me like that was just like, you know, there's just so many other things that she could have done that, um, that would have helped me, you know, like, huh, okay, you know, you know, okay, so you, you feel like he's not, but why don't you come back, keep coming back to the group and, you know, and we can, can, we can continue this conversation and see how you feel in a month or, you know, anything other than saying, no, your son's an addict, it, it was kind of like shoving it down my throat. Well, yeah, because you want to, I mean, I still, I think compassion and kindness still has to overrule. I wouldn't say that to somebody whose child was just diagnosed with leukemia. Hey, they have a fighting chance, but you're not going to be okay unless you accept that they're going to die. Yeah, or, right. Exactly. You know, your child, I wouldn't present that harsh. I would still, it's not about sugarcoating or denial. It's about having some compassion and treading lightly. Right, that I'm still, that right, that I was still discovering things, and I still, I just You're wasn't wrong. there yet. Right, I just, I just wasn't there. I was in a meeting once, and I love my support group, I have to say. They have, they're my people. They have become my family and my friends. I look forward to every face. I look forward to, I have sat with them when they're, they've had great disappointment that they didn't expect or great breakthrough, and I just have found the finest people in those rooms, um, but I was at one meeting where, uh, a couple of people were there and they were relatively new with their relative and they were kind of making a big deal over things that were said to them once their relative went into treatment. And somebody from across the room said, I don't mean to interrupt, but why would that bother you? 
almost as if I'm dealing with so much more. Why would you be bothered by a comment? And the, the facilitator said, maybe because they're raw and this right. is all new. Right. And it, I was so thankful. He didn't say it nasty or rude and put anyone in their place, but I was so thankful that that support came alongside them in that moment because it was one of their first times and they had this look on their face like, I want to leave this room and never come back. So I was like, I know what it's like to walk into a setting raw. I walked to a church altar on Sundays raw, hoping I would have prayer over our situation and leave with a miracle. Right. You know, I had, I didn't attend a support group, but I had people say really harsh things to me in those settings yeah. when I needed comfort and support. So it was really nice to see that support was there for both. Right. And it kind of corrected him kindly, but put an arm around these people that kept coming back. Right. Because you right. are so raw. Right. And Delivery matters. Delivery matters. It does. It does. It does. And and so those those two meetings that I had gone to really kind of cut me off from from going. I I just it was like okay, so I'll just hang out on my couch for six. I'll months. just like heal at home. Yeah, and, exactly. and get on Google. I'll right. just figure it out on my own. I I do have to say I. I was lucky in that I, and I've mentioned her in the past, I have my cousin Gina, um, who knows, I, I've, I've gotten the okay, I can use her name, um, but I did have my cousin Gina, who was already going through this stuff with her son as well. Right. Um, and so she really, um, I felt like she really put her arm around me and, and we, we were a distance away from one another. So it was really a lot of telephone calls um, before I could finally go and see her. Um, And then she brought me to another support group, but, um, but her going through that and her having this, she never said anything judgmental towards me ever, ever. And really, really just listened. um, And, uh, and it was, it was, it's actually Gina that got me to, um, allies in recovery as well. Um, because her, uh, philosophy on how to deal with this issue and my philosophy, it just matches amazingly, just perfectly. Um, and she's the one who actually told me about craft and I went and looked it up and found allies in recovery, um, through looking, looking at craft. Um, and then I told her about allies and recovery. So um, that's kind of like when you're ready, all of those things begin to unfold and come into your path. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I wanted to say like any group setting, I've certainly experienced this with other parents at school, family settings, work settings, church, sporting events. There's good, bad, and ugly. I've had yeah. people treat me ugly at McDonald's, right. but I kept going back. You right. know, I, didn't, I didn't take it personal. I've had people be really awkward and uncomfortable and very judgmental in church settings when I needed nothing but kindness to stop the bleeding, but I had to figure out and find my way. So you just have to find one. I'm not saying keep going back if somebody's making you uncomfortable or brutal, Right. but sometimes you have to give something. That's why they say, try to go at least five times or find one that is a fit. Because I think, you know, I do a lot of recovery and therapy work and I have found my way to, you know, a good deal of wellness Right. But I think in the meetings, really, that's where healing happens. I can't explain it because nothing shows up and presents itself as this is fixing anything, but life just does begin to improve and get better. Right. And I, um, so, so I totally agree with you. 
Um, it just, it does, I did have aha moments. Yeah. Right. I did have, I, you know, we would be doing a reading or, or something, or someone would be speaking. Right. And, and as you know, everybody speaks in very general terms, but, and I would have these moments and it would be like, Oh, 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 I get it now. Oh, I get it. You know, and it, and through that, I would get this healing. Um, but you know, just, back to the beginning of the story is that after my six months of hanging out, doing absolutely nothing, um, and really finding that I'm not getting much better, or at least I had gotten as good as I could on my own. And now I needed to really put some, put some work into getting better and not just sitting around wallowing in it. Um, and that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to do exactly what they're asking my son to do which um, at the time they were saying 30 days, 30 meetings. And so that's what I did. I said, okay, I'm going to do my, for 30 days, my, even if my only goal for the day is to make a meeting. And, and actually for quite a few days, it was, my only goal was where am I going to go to a meeting? And I would plan my day around the meeting. Sometimes I do morning meetings, sometimes it was evening meetings, and I traveled quite a distance to quite a few um, different meetings. And I can say it was the best thing I did um, because it did just what you were talking about. It gave me the opportunity to try out and to see that the atmosphere, the mood, the people differ from meeting to meeting. And that, um, and when I say I went out looking for meetings, I'm talking right now, I'm talking specifically Al-Anon and Naranon. Yes, that's what I got you. Right. Well, but I know there's others, but. There are others. There's, um, I know there's like um, codependence meetings and there's a ton now. Now there's even more because I also know there's like parents supporting. Well, yeah, there's a parent support group before one of mine. However, I really feel like my mother's um, situation had more of an impact. So I have more of a family perspective of it. Yeah. My son's was not a brief period, but a period of, you know, it was about five or six years and we're four years past it. Not that it couldn't appear again, but right. I have a, on a larger scale, I am more impacted by family dysfunction and pathology right. of it than I am those five years. Right, right. It makes sense. Makes sense, right? And um, and there are and there are a ton of now. There's like all these support groups online, yeah. right? You can do like smart smart recovery, which I think has groups not only for people that are um, uh, families and friends, but also for people that are in recovery. Um, I've also been able to join a group um, out of the Heron Project, which I I do. Um, I do a little fundraising for them. My daughter uh, kind of got me involved in that because she ran the Boston Marathon to help uh, raise money for the Heron Project. I, I I don't know if you know who he is, but he he was a Boston Celtic. He was a basketball player from this area, and he went through the same. Um, he went through a really tough struggle. He um, he is in recovery now. He lives near us and. Um, he has a foundation where they uh, raise money and they try and send people, they help like scholarship them into sober homes, into recovery yeah. treatment facilities. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, so I did my 30 days, um, 30 meetings and I, um, 
I discovered that some meetings were fantastic, some meetings were not so fantastic. Um, and in that 30 days, I was able to whittle it down to like three groups that I thought were really good for me. Um, and I continued with those three groups for a long time. And then eventually I whittled it down to one. Um, and just like you, I, um, and, and I'm still talking only Al-Anon and Naranon because there are other groups that I do attend, but, um, but then I whittled that down to one group that was near me. And just like you, I mean, just the most wonderful people, people yeah. I never would have had contact with if I hadn't done this. And if my son had, I had them, I had a group of them show up to my book signing and I, my heart about stopped. It was so touching for me to see that, like the, to see those mm -hmm. faces walk in the door that I only see in that closed room. Mm -hmm. Right. It was powerfully touching for me. Right. And, and, um, and I can honestly say that, that my one group that I, that I went to was just, um, the most wonderful people, so supportive, um, and just uh, boosted me up. And um, I learned so much from them, and it was incredibly helpful. Um, and then also, I, I had joined the group Learn to Cope through my cousin. So I became a part of that group. I also became a facilitator. Plus, I'm, I, and I don't, I don't, I haven't done Learn to Cope in a long time. Um, but I am still also in an online group with the Heron Project, which right. I, which I actually, amazingly, I love that group. Uh, I'm in as well called the Addicts Parents United, and I think that's on Facebook, but they have like yeah. TAPU.org, I believe it is, online, and they do, they do a lot of blessing bags in the city where they drop off bags of stuff to homeless people, you know, and some, a lot of them are college age kids with shampoo and toothpaste to say like, you know, some, you matter. Yeah. Like, people are praying for you. People care about you. You can come out of this. And they have, they have a closed group as well for people who want to just vent about their situation in private. They have one for, they have a, um, one for survivors of loss. They have people for a branch for people who are raising grandkids. So I found that before I found the rooms. Right, right. But then before that, I had Google, and I had the pharmacist right. down the street, a police officer on call, and two a friend that counseled in the court system, and a family therapist that I, and then my, one of my best friends that I would call, um, and her older brother had been addicted years before, and she would tell me kind of, she would kind of run interference from her mother and say, "This is what my mom said or did, and this is how what the outcome was, good or bad, and this right. is where the where, where we would catch manipulation." or what she would do with her fears. So before I was ever in a room or, and then I was online, um, I just had people that I called other than that. I think you did it the right way because I pretty much did it alone. I walked the floors alone. I shouldered it alone. I went to work alone and I was battling my mother in the midst of that. Like, you know, um, that's all in my book, but she became kind of a fierce enemy of the cause for getting my son healthy, well, and mm -hmm. out of the situation, I really went through it alone. And that's one reason I wrote the book. And that's one reason I try to steer people towards support because I know the hopelessness of going through it alone right. and you don't have to. Right. Right. And, um, I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it that way. I'm glad that I, um, I went to those support groups and I, um, and I found people like myself 
right, suffering in the same way um, that I was suffering. So they understood what I was going through. And um, through that, they helped me as well as I was able to help other people. Um, and helping other people, uh, there's nothing better in the world. <laughs> nothing, nothing like making you, you know, which I think like helping other people is actually a really selfish act because boy, oh boy, does it make me feel good to help someone else. Right. Um, uh, so what got me thinking though about support groups is there is some huge, huge upside. There's this huge camaraderie and connection and people that really do care about you and, and come to love you and, um, and you really can gain some healing. But I actually did a blog on the air, uh, a discussion blog on the air website because someone had asked this question about how does Al-Anon align with allies in recovery? Um, and I really wanted to kind of give my take on that because what I noticed in a lot of the support groups, and now I'm not going to say it's true on the, um, the Heron Project, on that support group that I belong to, because on that particular support group, it's run by a professional. So, so there's no straying off into, um, into particular viewpoints, or uh, there's no one person that dominates or a group of people that dominate the support group. Um, but what I found with some support groups, not all, if there is a mood or, um, or if someone or a group of people come to a particular conclusion, so I'm gonna just give you an example. A lot of people out here in, in Massachusetts uh, believe in sectioning. They call it sectioning. Have you, do, you know, do you have this in your state? I haven't, are you talking about section 35? Yeah. I'm just now reading about that. I'm not sure how available that is. So, um, explain that really quick. Yeah, sure. Sectioning is, um, where the family can, um, it's not just the family. Um, I'm pretty sure like hospitals or doctors can do it as well, but it's where the family can go to the court and can have their, um, loved one committed to um to detox and to treatment but it's really sending them into a um a state-run facility typically they are um actually a section of a jail or they can be a section of a jail that's just kind of been sectioned off which is where they put them in detox um and it's just uh it's not an easy thing to do it's extremely emotional. You have to take a day off from work. You have to go before a judge. You have to have all sorts of evidence that the person is going to hurt themselves or hurt somebody else. Right. Um, and in Massachusetts, because you can do this, a lot of people will section their loved ones over and over and over again, five, six, seven, eight, nine times. And um, if you go to a lot of these meetings, and, and I'm just, this just happens to be one of the issues, everybody in a group will say, section them, section them, 
you should section, you should, it almost as if that is the only go-to, that's the only thing we can do is section them. And, um, and I find like I've been to meetings where I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, but they sectioned the person five or six times. Maybe it's time to change things up. Maybe sectioning isn't working for this particular person. Right. Right. And I'll, and I'll hear a lot of parents, like I've, I've heard a lot of parents in meetings say things like, um, well, I've sectioned them five or six times. I'm not going to do it again. But then there's huge pressure in the room for them to section. And my thoughts are, well, one, we don't know all of the circumstances that's going on with this family. We don't know what's going on with their particular loved one that is suffering with SUD. Um, we don't know where they're on their journey. And um, I don't know if pressuring them is, is the best way to, to yeah, go about this. That should definitely, like, I know that they, like it, and the two I go to, it's always never give advice. And you always hear the statement repeated, don't make a decision based on advice from someone who does not have to live with the consequences or the outcome. You're right. the one that has to go to bed with the consequences of your decision tonight, good right. or bad, whatever. If you, because, you know, I would hear a lot in the beginning, not from a support group, but in my situation, we'll just detach, put him out. You need right. to do this or that. All of the intervention tactics from the TV show. And I would think, well, how's that possible? Or we were just a couple of months in and he was young and no, I don't want this kind of advice right now. I want to, I don't, I mean, I was like in a tornado of it and I always come back to that. Don't make your decisions based on the advice of someone who is not going to be affected by the outcome. Right, right. You have to do was, what's right for you, and only you know when you're ready to section someone, put them out, right, and whatever the case may be. Right, and that was, and that's what I find is in these groups. I, I, I agree. In every single support group I've been in, they have all said the same thing. We don't give advice. We right. shouldn't give advice. But then I see these, um, I see these things happening within the, within the group itself, and they're not even aware of it. Like, I don't think it's deliberate. I don't think someone's sitting in the background going, oh, you know, we got to make sure that people section. I think they're not aware of it, and I see how it can kind of, it's almost like um, uh, uh, Salem's witch trials, yeah. right, where people just oh yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, you should definitely section it. This is what's going to work. This is what you have to do. This right, is, right. It works It's a black or white decision. It's, right. it's left or right. And that's right. not how and, this disease goes. Right. And that was my, that's my thing is that when you, if you go to a support group, you have to bear that in mind that that can, that that can happen and you have to um, be willing to step back and protect yourself and, and be willing to either, um, you know, either walk away from that particular group or try and change the, try and change the, um, philosophy that they're, that, or the trap that they're falling into kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and kind of bring it back to, oh, okay. So no advice. We shouldn't be giving advice. It, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what you and can And shift do. the energy back to, um, yeah, to more positive. Really, yeah. And yeah. I, I watch people who hear that one statement. You don't have to make this decision right now. Maybe it's a right decision eventually. Maybe it's not. You only, you know, you have to go with what gives you peace. And I had a therapist say to me, you have to do whatever it is for you to be okay, for you to feel safe, for you to have peace. And there was a relief to that, that maybe I'm not going to take some hard line decision right now. 
Right, right. And, and um, I, I'm, the, I'm the same way. I, I heard this um, therapist one time, she said, um, and this was in regards to kicking, kicking my son out of the house. She said to me, you need to ask your question, the question to yourself. Are you okay if you, if you don't let him in your house and, um, you know, I don't know, he goes and he's, he goes couch surfing or he ends up in a shelter or, are, or let's say he just ends up on the street living somewhere on the street. Are you okay right now that, that you know, that he, if he dies there, is that, are you comfortable with that? Or are you comfortable with him possibly dying in your house? So you have to, you, do you know what I'm saying to her? Yeah, it, right. it, it was, what is it that's going to work for you? Because what, whatever you do is not going to present when his death, it's not going to prevent his death right. or his use. Right. Are you okay left or right for you? Either, right, exactly. And you have to set up the boundaries because who knows, maybe if you do, say, oh, you can't, you can't stay here tonight. Um, you, you know, you might be going crazy in your head with them out on the street that particular, that particular night. Or if you do let them stay in your house, you might be going crazy worried because they're in behind a locked door in their bedroom, say, you know, I, I, I don't know. So you have to, you really do have to protect yourself. You have to set up the boundaries and protect yourself. And, and I guess that is my point that, um, that in these support groups, there should be no advice. There should be no one particular route, one particular journey, just because, some, and, and, and to me, when they start, when groups start doing that, it's because someone in the group had success with that particular method, and now they think it should work for everybody else. And I also question success with who, with who and with what. Does that make sense? So, yes. so was there success because you got relief from sectioning your child, or was there success because your child then became sober? Right. Right? So it's... So it's really, to me, it's very um, wishy-washy, and it's a dangerous place to go when you're when you're uh, when you're saying to somebody else, you have to follow the same path that I followed uh, in order to have success, or it has to be done this way. That is why I'm so careful when I was when people call or I get messages every day, just about, and I answer all of them. I always say. I don't know what will work for you. I'll just tell you my experience and what worked for me or what was a disaster when I did it. But I can't advise you. I'm just going to tell you what does or does not work for me. You have to figure out what does or does not work for you. Right. And, and, and that's, that's, uh, brings up another, um, another topic when you think about it, because what works for me might not work for you. What works for you might not work for me because um, the person that is in our lives suffering with SUD comes from totally different backgrounds or totally different, like, you, you know, we've talked about this a little bit where your son, um, it doesn't sound like he suffers from huge mental illness issues, right? And Not it's not much. It seems like his behavior is all in the occurrence of active addiction. We don't typically right. have acting out impulse right. control or conflict outside of that. Right. Which is, which is, um, I, I, I believe that. I believe wholeheartedly that there's plenty of people out there that become um, uh, uh, substance users or abusers 
um, for whatever reason. Maybe they happened upon it in a social situation. Maybe they were just acting out because they were just being teenagers. Right. Or- he was, his was injury related. But I do right. have to say, when he becomes um, sick, so do I. <laughs> right. When, when right. he's in active addiction, that's when you'll see me acting out too and right. it's gotten a lot better where I'm like healthier I've put in the years of work and recovery and all of that but I only got sick on that level when he was sick when he was sick right well in right. and, and but I also look at like I you know comparisons like my son my son suffered from mental illness from the time from the time he was born right so so the decisions that I'm going to make for my son might be totally different than because I know what he is capable of or what he's not capable of doing, you know, versus your son. So, so me trying to tell you how you should take care of your son is. Well, you know, let me add to that. I had a lot of advice about how to handle my mother and I would have people say, but that's your mom. You can cut your mom off. You can cut anybody off, but you can't cut your mom or family off. And I finally ended up watching a television program one day where the counselor, it was a counseling show, said, just because I shared DNA with somebody doesn't mean they get to trample me and use and abuse me and act wrong without accountability. You might call me a terrible person for cutting you off, maybe forever, maybe for a while, but you'll call me a terrible person from across the country. Right. Because I'm not going to take this or accept this or lay down because we share DNA. So a lot of people would say, oh, but that's your mom. Like I had to show up for Christmas while we're in the midst of a death match for my son to find freedom from, you know, an opiate problem that she thought, well, because it's prescribed, we can share these pills or I'll help him not suffer withdrawal because I have them available. I can't just show up at Thanksgiving and act like this elephant is nothing's not going on. Table, yeah. And I don't want to strangle it. Right. You know? So, right. And, and you do make peace. You do find forgiveness later. And I am a big believer in that. I don't hold a lot of things against her. It took, I did the work to recover, but no one can give me advice when it comes to handling right. that mother and nobody right. ever should. I'm not looking for it. Don't give it because your, your mom is probably people giving me advice. Their moms were a whole lot different than the dynamic I was dealing with. Right. Right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the also, and also the other, I mean, the other issue, um, which is what I blogged about on the air website was, um, detachment, you know, in, in Al-Anon, and I'm going to talk about them specifically in Al-Anon, what they say is they say detach with love. They don't say detach and run away right? They don't say, they, all they say is detach with love. And to me, that aligns perfectly with allies in recovery because, right? That's exactly what allies in recovery is teaching you to do. Detach, detach from the disease. Don't feed the disease, feed the good things, feed the positive behaviors that, that you're seeing which is exactly what I think that uh, what I got out of my meetings was that um, I learned about respect, about having respect for my loved one that is suffering with SUD, right. not just having respect for people that weren't suffering from this disease, but the person that's also suffering with this disease. I had to have respect for him, even when he's in the throes of what I see as a temper tantrum. 
I think people, because I hear people say, what does that mean? What does that look like? How can I possibly detach from the person I love so much as they're spiraling, as their like, life is going downhill this fast? It's like 100 miles an hour toward a brick wall. Now detach? I don't think it's clearly identified like it should be. Right. I cannot detach from this child of mine that I taught how to read. Right. I walk. I watched play sports. I carefully chose schools for him. I rocked him when he was sick. Now when he's at the most miserable time of his life, you're not going to have any contact with me. Right. Right. And that's, that's what I mean because – because it doesn't say that in that there is there you can't find it in the courage to change you can't find it in the blue book you can't find you cannot find it anywhere where it says you have to detach with them completely and have nothing to do with them or it doesn't say that it says to detach with love to detach from the disease which is exactly in my mind what I see going on with allies in recovery and the videos where it teaches me how to communicate, how to, when the disease rears its ugly head, how to calm myself down and, you know, in my mind say, I will not engage with the disease. But when you are doing well, when you are overcoming the disease, I will be right here with you. So you're not high right now. I'm going to take you out to lunch because I know it's a really difficult thing for you to do. So let's go out to lunch. And maybe they're not high for a little bit longer. And to me, that is detachment with love. That is, I'm detaching um, I'm detaching with the disease. I'm not engaging in all the chaos. I'm not going to I'm not going to give you $40 that you claim you're going to go and buy something with when I know that's not what you're using the $40 for or I'm not going to um I you know you're you're going to go out with um some friends that I know that you use with all the time. Well, I'm not going to support that right? I'm not going to be there for that. I'm going to walk away and I'm not going to have anything to do with it. But when I see, when you say things, because I, I do believe that, um, through all the manipulation and all the, all the, um, all the, the fog and the haze when things are chaotic and people will say, well, he, he doesn't want to, he, he never wants to. I think they do express that they want to be clean, that they want to be drug free. Uh, you just have to be looking for it. Right. Yeah, you have- it's really miserable. And, you know, I'd, I'd had somebody say, um, you know, my husband, my daughter doesn't live in my house because they're not following the rules, not because I kicked them out and don't want to want them here. They're choosing to not follow the rules. Right. Those rules might be things can't go missing. You can't right. sleep in. You can't, use any type of substances, you know, that are mind altering, whatever your rules are, those rules are in place. You're not forcing the person to break them or, or you're not forcing them out. You're not saying, I don't want you here because I don't want you here. Right. The rules, if you break them, you are choosing to not live here. Right. Which is setting up in my mind. That's, that's everything that we've talked about, right? That it's setting up those clear, consistent boundaries. It doesn't mean I don't love you because I do, right? It's keeping the door open for when, okay, when you're ready um, to lead this kind of a life, um, then you can, then you can 
come here and you can join me, right? Or, or maybe not, who knows? Maybe, maybe they'll never get there, but it's, but it's clear. It's, it's detachment. It's detachment from the disease. It's detachment from things that, um, uh, uh, make you crazy, right? And it's still being open, keeping the communication open and still loving the person, right? And it also, it also uh, setting up those clear and concise boundaries um, basically also tells them, you know what, I know you can do this. Yeah, you matter, and you're important, and you're an right. honorable person. And you're capable. Them. Yes, there's layers of this disease, and it's gotten you so far buried inside it, but you are honorable, and you matter, and that person is loved right. that's down inside this disease. Right, right. Yeah, support has definitely taught me that as well, because I came from an era, that era of tough love rock bottom and I changed my wording to smart love. I don't even use tough love. Smart love is wise love. I have to love my addicted loved ones completely different. Helping is different now. I think I, you know, I'm glad you kind of bring up that wording to tough love. I think um, that's probably one of the things that we could have put in the anecdotal stuff that we talked about um, that come out of support groups, right? That what, what does tough love mean? And actually tough love, I think is tough more on you than it is the other person. I think tough love is saying this is killing me. Right. But I can't be a part, I can't participate exactly. with you. This is right, exactly. It's but, not saying get away from me, get out, right. leave, you're an embarrassment, here we go again. Right. That's not tough love, that's shame. Right, exactly. And that's, and that's, um, that's why I, I like what you're saying because I think a lot of people interpret tough love as meaning that, as meaning I have to get tough on the other person. Right. And it's like, well, actually, I don't, I don't think you're really getting tough on the other person. I think that, that I have yet to see where shaming, uh, yelling is, I have yet to see it work. If it, you know, maybe it, maybe it does, maybe it does, you know, once in a blue moon, but I have yet to see a family come into a meeting, um, and say, Oh my God, I yelled and screamed at him the other day. And, you know, and I just, and I shut the door in his face and now he's, he's doing exactly what I want him to do. No, that I haven't seen it work. In fact, we had to make amends for that later. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So yes, I, I agree. I, tough love does not mean, um, be an authoritarian. Um, or saying I'm right, you're wrong, I'm good, you're bad. It's not black and right. white like that. That's, They're caught up it. in the right. activity of the disease and the decisions the disease is leading them to make. That doesn't mean no accountability or consequences. Right. That means they are functioning in the activity of their disease. Shaming does not work. Right. Boundaries and consequences exactly. with a loving spirit work. Exactly. And I, I like what you just said. Um, what did you say? You said something in particular. Oh, um, I've heard this before where I, I try and explain this particular, uh, what we're talking about, about how one, how doing nothing sometimes is doing something different, right? Meaning you don't have to give them a response or a reaction or an answer in the moment when it's happening. Sometimes you can stop and say, I don't know. I need to think about it. And don't do anything for a while. And that's different than what you were doing before, because before you were reacting. Right. Um, and also, it, but I hear when, when I talk about this, 
or when I talk about, um, you know, either not reacting or I say, you know, take it down a notch. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? Um, you might want to think about this. I've heard people say, oh no, doing nothing. I can't, I can't, I can't just do nothing and let them walk all over me. And, and my thing is, is you're not doing nothing. It, it's not, it's not, that's not what I'm talking about. You are doing something. You're changing it up. You're changing it up and you're. And sometimes taking a pause is changing it up because you're pulling away from a heated conversation and that's healthier than that heated conversation. It just, right. it, it just right. really is. Right. And I don't like to quote Dr. Phil, but you know, Dr. Phil always says, how is it working for you? Right. <laughs> right. That's, that's the other thing. How is it working? How's it working? Is it working? It's not. Okay. Then change it up. Then maybe I need to do something different. Right. And I have to add that um, until you find a support group, whether online or find the rooms, Allies and Recovery is available, the addicts' parents. Yep. Um, you can message us, I believe, personally, also from the Ally site. But um, be careful of unsupportive conversations because you cannot just let your guard down and unload the situation. Right. People that have no experience or understanding. Right. Because you're going to get devoured. You're going to get your feelings hurt. Even when people are not intending to say things to cut you, even just being casual or flippant or giving an opinion that's based on no knowledge, experience, education, or compassion is an unsupported opinion given to you is so wounding. It adds, I think it adds weight. And I know right. I experienced a lot of that because friends I'd had in place that I could normally vent to about workplace issues or needing to lose weight were not the same friends. I could say, I've got this tornado level 10 crisis with my son. I couldn't take those conversations to them. Right. And, Completely different mentality and experience. Right. And defend, and in defense of a lot of those people that are outside of the situation, they're outside of the situation. They really cannot understand what you they are. They don't have it to give. Right. They don't have, they have no idea what you feel. The, the, uh, the only other people that know how you feel are the people that are going through the same stuff and, and, um, and they will be there. And I also will say, and this is something that I think has to be battled with, um, with SUD is when people make those comments, they are contributing to the stigma. Right. Right. And it prevents people from actually going and getting the help that they need. And so right. avoid, 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 that doesn't mean don't care about somebody or maintain exactly. a friendship. It means protect yourself. I put like a exactly. battery on myself where I knew who was safe and who was unsafe. And I knew if it was a right. particularly crisis day, I couldn't talk to certain people that would say, how are you doing? And even come across really warm and engaging and let that guard down because they didn't have it. Right. They don't get it. Right. And I'm going to get wounded. Right. I, mean, I had one friend who would, you know, complain about her mom coming over and taking it upon herself to do her laundry for her. And I remember thinking, my mom is like keeping secrets from me that could lead my son to a casket. I would give anything to have your problem of a mom doing my laundry, but I can't attack her and be venomous about it because she's got, she's in a whole different. Yeah. Place. She doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't have it. Right. 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 And you, she and you, never has to have it. Right. It's a miserable thing to have anyone close to you addicted and living in the dysfunctional patterns of that. Right. But you, I just had to put a wall up where 
okay, we can talk about our favorite television shows when I'm in a place where I'm not hemorrhaging with this. Right. We can talk about things common to us, but we are not on that wavelength. Right. And I, and, and that's happened to me as well. And I, I do the same thing, Annie. I, I'm like, okay, I just, I back way down. I, you know, I try to be understanding that they don't, they have no idea where I'm coming from. Um, I don't wish, and, uh, let me add, wish that not, they did you're, know. you're not going to talk them into nope. figuring it out because when it first started, I would send emails later that were very long. Like, do you realize you said this in a really hard moment for me? And it came across really cold. I don't know if you meant to be cruel, but I'd love to have your problems. And they couldn't get it. All it yeah, did. They was, don't get it. It's just conflict exchanges that are extra that you don't need. Right. Exactly. And that's, and that's what I've done. I've, I protect myself. That's how, and I, and I do have to say there have been friends that were very, very good friends for a long time. And then this happened and the cold comments, um, and repeated cold comments or, or pieces of advice, um, and uh, that now, like when I interact, they sense. I can tell they sense. There's, there. I'm guarded, and I won't, and I won't let it down. Um, and so I've started getting comments about that as well. But and there's no right or wrong when it comes to that. It's not saying they're wrong and you're right. No, I'm you're not. on two different planets. It's like you're speaking. Yep. Someone's speaking Russian and you're speaking English. Right. You're not going to communicate and work that out. Come right. back to it later if you have to, or move on and protect yourself. Right. And you have in, to be supportive. And in defense of them, like I said before, and in defense of them, they're not going through it. So how could they right. know? How could they know? Right. right. And and they, they don't even know how they would act if they were in that situation. So um, so I can't hold it against them, but I do still have to protect myself. Always protect your, that's, that's what I mean. Be supportive. You have to be your own advocate. Right. Whether it's in a support group that's geared toward the situation or it's with lifelong friends. You have to, especially when you're in that raw crisis place, you have to protect, you have to care about yourself enough that you reduce your reactivity to those things because you're your own support. Right. And it's a waste of time. Right. And it, yeah, that's exactly right. So I wish I would have had this podcast when I was in the first year or two of it because I would have jumped on the elliptical or played it on my way to work and found some hope and ideas right. and suggestions that would have been so huge. So I hope we have become that for our listeners. I hope so too. I, you know, I really, really hope so. Um, but uh, now let's see, I guess that's, that's pretty much it from my end of it. How are you feeling? Are you feeling... Um, yeah, I think that's about it. I just can't recommend support enough, whether it's online, yeah, talk to a pharmacist, find a therapist, find yeah. the rooms, find a room that fits for you after going back a few times because you will find relief, hope, and you'll find friendship. Right. You know, just one more thing I do want to say, um, just kind of piggybacking on what, you, what you're saying. So, so I um, was helping to organize this performance. It's actually tonight. Um, awesome. It's this, it's uh, called Drug Story Theater, um, and it's at our local theater. It's, it's a recovery high school, um, and they're giving a performance tonight to help with the prevention wow. of, right? It's awesome, actually. But we've also organized um, 
two groups to come at the end to be honored and recognized. The first group are families and friends that have lost a loved one. Um, so they're coming and they are um, bringing a picture of their loved one. And at the end, we, we, wanna honor, we want them to stand and we want to honor them um, because really they're heroic people in the community right. because they're really doing um, this, this particular group travels around to different performances and like different youth summits um, to try and, and make the community aware of the epidemic that's going on um, through the loss of their loved one. And I was speaking to the woman who kind of organizes everything. And she was telling me how this all happened, how she ended up um, actually traveling around with a group. She met another woman after her son passed. She met another woman and they just started meeting for coffee and talking. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then they had another person join their group. And then they started going to um, different um, organizations and speaking and standing there with a picture of their loved one. Then they became a part of, um, I don't know if you know about the Wahlberg Foundation. Have you ever heard of the movie, um, If Only? Mm -mm. So Jimmy Wahlberg, Mark Wahlberg's brother, um, created a movie. It's called If Only. It's, it's a really great movie. It's really for like parents of teenagers. It's, it's to try and make them more aware and for prevention. But at the end of the movie, he has all these people come out one at a time with the picture of their loved one. And she, this woman was a part of that. Oh, wow. Right. And, um, she she was talking to me about how they do that. I mean, now it's huge. Now we're talking like it's a group of about, it's a closed group of about 80 people, 80 families. And, um, and she said there's so much healing because they understand each other, what each person in each family is going through. Yeah. And they have that camaraderie. And I think that that's, the same thing that we go through, we're finding people that are similar to ourselves. Right. It's that support. Yeah. 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 I want to piggyback on that and say I'd written a blog as well for Allies in Recovery about support. And in the research for it, I'd listened to a podcast and done some other research that talked about how redwood trees have very shallow roots, even though they're some of the tallest, strongest trees there are. And that's because underground, they link together and that forms a force so that when the storms oh, come, cool. they stand strong as one. That's and that cool. to me is a picture of what true, honest, healthy support provides. Very nice. Very nice. I love it. Yeah, so love it. until next time, keep coming back and I will, we will see you next week. Yep. Coming up for air. Bye, Annie. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Coming Up for Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online, or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. 
In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.